I'm wondering how many of you remember the days when the Wheaties cereal box had the most famous athletes of all time. For example, Mary Lou Retton, first U.S. woman ever win the all-around gymnastics gold medal in 1984. Or how about Carl Lewis, who won nine Olympic track and field gold medals during his career from 1979 to 1996. Or how many of you remember Pete Rose or Walter Payton <laughs> or Chris Everett or Jim Kelly or A.C. Green? All those folks were on successive Wheaties box covers. But do you know who came after them? The person with the most Wheaties box covers of all time, 18 total box covers, Michael Jordan. Maybe some of you even remember that for a short time, you could get a Michael Jordan poster with every single box of cereal. Now, I can't even tell you how many boxes of Wheaties I would go through each and every week, but it was a ton just so that I could get the poster because I absolutely love Michael Jordan. He was my favorite NBA basketball player of all time. I didn't just love him. I wanted to be like him. Because the greatest form of esteem is emulation. So I would shoot like him. I would fade like him. I would drive to the basket like him. I would stick out my tongue like him. <laughs> Listen to this. I would even dunk from the free throw line like him. Well, it was an eight and a half foot rim inside my buddy's garage. But nonetheless, right, I would dunk like him. We would have dunk contests with live commentators and commercials, all done by ourselves. And we would record them on VHS tape. And then we would go home and we would watch them over and over and over again, thinking that somehow we were impressive. <laughs> my point is emulation. The greatest form of esteem is emulation. And that's not all bad. Because Christians, as Christians, we should be striving to be more like Christ. But I would argue that we as a church should also have ambitions to be like other great churches. But if we had to choose a church to model ourselves after, what church would that be? Well, how about the church in Antioch? First place where believers were called Christians, the place where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from as missionaries. So right off the bat, we've got a lot of good stuff in the church of Antioch to emulate. Before we jump in, let me give you some quick background information on Antioch. Antioch was a happening city, capital of the Roman province of Syria, third largest city in the empire, both in size and in importance. They had magnificent temples, theaters, Aqueducts, so a metropolitan location with a population of 250,000 people from lots of different backgrounds, so tremendously diverse. But it was also one of the earliest centers of Christianity and the spread of the gospel. So a very significant city. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Acts 11. We're going to look at this church in Antioch, Acts chapter 11. It's on page 920 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. also encourage you to grab my outline, The Gospel Plants Churches. 
We're going to see this morning what we can learn from the church in Antioch and how we can emulate their orientation to the gospel, their orientation to missions. Acts chapter 11, page 920. Follow along as I read verses 19 to 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want you to notice how this church got started. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus told us back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that his disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And where does Christianity start? Well, it starts in Acts chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost. It starts in Jerusalem. Peter's preaching the gospel. The people hear the good news of Jesus. They come to faith and they start devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Acts 2.42. What is that? That's the church. Then the disciples continued to preach. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But they're still centered in Jerusalem. And Jesus told them to be his witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So what does God do? Well, he brings persecution. Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles all stayed in Jerusalem, but the rest of the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christians were scattered to the four corners of the earth. Again, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, it's helpful to know that Phoenicia is 380 miles north of Jerusalem. Cyprus is 250 miles northwest. And Antioch is 300 miles northeast. So these normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christians traveled north. And they turned the world upside down. How did they do that? Through their effective 
evangelism. I mean, that's what's highlighted in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, because some, according to verse 19, were speaking the word to no one except Jews, but others, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So they're preaching the good news of the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, I want you to grab a hold of this, that the most important people in the church are almost always unknown. Meaning there's a radical difference between popularity and significant. So just because a person is a preacher up front every Sunday, known by all and popular, doesn't mean they're the most significant person in the church. Instead, the most significant people in the church are the people who are doing the work of the ministry. And these people, these normal, everyday, unknown Christians are doing the work of the ministry. And how are they doing that? Through effective evangelism. And what does that look like? Well, I listed three things highlighted right here, starting with a passion for God. I mean, I want you to realize these people were just persecuted in Jerusalem. And they were forced to move against their will. So don't you think there would have been a very strong temptation to just mellow out a bit, to take it down a notch, to chill out and, and not evangelize to the point of being persecuted again? We just went through that. Let's not do that again. But that's not what they do. Instead, if anything, they take it up a notch. And please realize they're just sharing the gospel in the normal everyday activities of life. I mean, these are businessmen. These are people with jobs, interacting with friends and family, neighbors and coworkers. So they've wholeheartedly embraced their mission identity. You do realize, don't you, that to be a Christian is to be a missionary. So the only difference between you and a formal missionary is location, not identity. You don't need a title or a position or a mission board or an approval committee or financial support. You just need a passion for God that motivates you to engage people on spiritual topics, to share your testimony, to point them to the truth of Scripture and to plead with them to be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus. Because Christians, by definition, are missionaries. We've all been called and commissioned by King Jesus, Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that King Jesus has commanded. So what exactly is a missionary mindset? Well, it has to start with number one, a passion for God. But it also has to have, number two, clarity on the gospel. But that clarity starts with a spiritual mindset that there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are spiritually alive and those who are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
So we all start out spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and only God, Ephesians 2, 4, can make you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. You have to have clarity on the gospel, that people are spiritually dead in their sins, and only God can make them alive through faith in Christ. And how does he do that? Well, through the faithful preaching of the gospel. The good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his atoning sacrifice, his willingness to take our sins upon himself and die the death that we rightly deserve so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can have the hope of eternal life. And that's exactly what these people are doing. Verse 20 says they've got a passion for Christ, speaking to the Hellenists, and are faithfully preaching the Lord Jesus. And all of that is absolutely awesome. It's necessary. It's essential. It's critical. What I want you to know is that if you've got all of that and the good hand of the Lord isn't on you, then you've got nothing. Look at verse 21. It says, And the good hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, what does that mean, that the good hand of the Lord was on them? Well, it means that God is using their passion for God and their clarity on the gospel and their faithful proclamation of the Lord Jesus to impact people's lives. That's why a number of people believed and turned to the Lord Jesus in faith. So for us to be anything like the church in Antioch, with that kind of effective evangelism and impact on our community, we need to have a passion for God and clarity on the gospel, but more than anything, we need the good hand of our great God to be upon us. But let me just ask, how are you doing this morning in your passion for God? How are you doing in your passion for the Lord Jesus? Is it growing or is it waning? Are you delighting yourself all the more in his finished work on the cross? Or is it becoming ho-hum to you? And are you growing in your clarity on the gospel personally, seeing with greater clarity the depth of your own sin so that you might be overwhelmed by God's mercy and God's grace and eager to engage the people around you, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your colleagues with the good news of the gospel? And are you asking for God's good hand to be upon you are you pleading with him to use you so that people might come to faith, grow in grace, and be saved? You know, here's a thought. What if each one of us had the joy of sharing the gospel with just one person this year? realistic expectations, right? That, that's the problem when you head into January. I'm going to go to the gym every single day, three times a week. 
that's probably not realistic. This is realistic. What if each one of us shared the gospel with just one person this year? And that person, as a result of you sharing, came to faith. How awesome would that be? We have like 200 people here this morning. What if each one of us shared the gospel with one person and that one person came to faith? Now, you probably have to share with more than just one person for one person to come to faith, but what if we did that? What if there were 200 brand new professions of faith in 2023? 200 new baptisms. I would suggest that would be an exercise in effective evangelism. But wherever you're at, let me challenge you this morning to put together a strategy so that you personally, as an individual Christian, might be growing in effective evangelism. But may we also be growing as a church in dynamic discipleship. If you would follow along as I read verses 22 to 26. It says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they, Barnabas and Paul, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I want you to understand and I want you to appreciate that faithful gospel proclamation requires, requires accountability. So the church in Antioch effectively evangelizes the lost and people are coming to faith. Verse 21, a great number believed in Jesus. So the church in Jerusalem wants to check it out. It wants to check out what's going on in Antioch to make sure that they're faithfully ministering the gospel once for all delivered to the saints rather than a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, or a gospel of works. So what do they do? They send Barnabas. Report comes down. Barnabas heads up. Who exactly is Barnabas? Acts 4.36 tells us his name was actually Joseph. Well, then why do they call him Barnabas? Just call him Joseph, but they call him Barnabas. Because that means son of encouragement. So that's who Barnabas is as a person. He's an encourager. We see in verse 23, when Barnabas saw the grace of God at work in these people's lives, coming to faith, growing in grace, and effectively evangelizing the lost, he was glad. And he exhorted them, so he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So essentially, Barnabas is their greatest cheerleader, encouraging them to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing their labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord. But what you need to understand is that the Jerusalem church 
is very different than the Antioch church. So it had a totally different culture, different demographic, different ministry, different mindset. Because the apostles in Jerusalem were ministering the gospel in a very Jewish culture. So they would have been more rigid, more stoic, more state. And that's what Barnabas would have been used to. Nonetheless, he sees the grace of God at work here in Antioch. He saw what God was doing, and he rejoiced. He was glad. And grace should make us glad, shouldn't it? It should make us happy. So Barnabas sees what the Lord is doing in this church, and he's thrilled. He's encouraged, which creates a culture of encouragement, Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So there's a spirit of proclamation, of evangelism, and of encouragement for the people to hear the good news of the gospel, to repent, and to believe. So Barnabas is reproducing himself. So now there's even more sons and daughters of encouragement, more people like Barnabas. So now there's Barnabai, right? There's encouragement multiplied. And who doesn't need that? Who doesn't need a little encouragement now and again? I mean, have you ever heard anyone in the history of the world say to you, no thanks, I don't want any more encouragement. I am all set. I am topped off. Got as much encouragement as I can possibly handle. Or do you know anyone in your life who wouldn't want to grow in their ability to be an encourager? Truth is, we'd all like to be more like Barnabas, wouldn't we? And wouldn't it be great to have a whole bunch of Barneys running around here? (laughs) That should be a goal. You should evaluate your life and say, I'm lacking in this area. I'm not much of an encourager. I'm pretty critical. I'm pretty skeptical. I kind of look at people and I think the least of them. Boy, if I could just make progress in that area. By the way, just a side note, I think we often think about life as failure and success. How about we think about it as just moving forward? Let's just move forward. Let's just make progress in the area of being an encourager. How awesome would it be if we all moved forward in being encouragers? Proclamation, ministry of encouragement, that would be awesome. Let me encourage you, 2023, to be moving in that direction. But there wasn't just a culture of encouragement. There was also a culture of biblical instruction. So please don't think you ever get over the gospel or ever think you know too much about the Bible. You could study the Bible a thousand years and then a thousand more and you'd still just be scratching the surface of understanding the Bible. Notice how Barnabas is not threatened whatsoever by his personal instruction of the Bible as if he's the only teacher or preacher or expositor. 
But what does he do? He goes to find the apostle Paul. Look at verse 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, to look for Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. So there's a culture of biblical instruction. Godly men faithfully teaching the scriptures from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, so that people might come to faith, grow in grace, and be mobilized to take the gospel to the nations. I mean, do you realize the only way to establish, build, and grow a church is on the word of God? So the proclamation of God's word is absolutely foundational to the health and the vitality of a church. Now, you can certainly gather a crowd through personality and through technology, smoke and lights, but you can only build a church on the word of God. And what's the result when you trust God and you faithfully preach the gospel? You get gospel-created fruit. Just look at verse 26. For a whole year, one whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And what's the result of this faithful gospel-saturated biblical instruction? Well, it's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So people with a new name because they had a new identity. And why is that? Well, because the gospel creates a whole new humanity, doesn't it? People who live gloriously different than the world around them, turning from sin, walking in righteousness, because a group of people were faithful to own the Great Commission for themselves. Matthew 28, to teach them all that God commanded so that they might observe and obey and respond rightly to all that Jesus said. So they're new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17, who've been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer they who live, but Christ who lives in them. And the life that they now live in the flesh, they live by faith in the Son of God who loved them and gave himself up for them. Galatians 2:20. They're new creatures in Christ with a new name. They're Christians. So what should we be striving for? To be more like this church in Antioch. Well, it would be growth in effective evangelism and growth in dynamic discipleship so that we might be a gospel-driven church. But what's the result of that? What's the result of being a gospel-driven church? How does that get worked out? Well, I would suggest the result is being a gospel-sending church. If you would, flip forward with me to Acts 13. Acts 13. Follow along as I read Verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch, so same church, right? Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now notice the five guys listed in verse one. 
They're prophets and teachers, godly men in the church, right? Five guys listed right there, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. I like to refer to these guys as the Fab Five. I started off with the Michael Jordan thing. If you know Fab Five, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, right? Fab Five. They're the best of the best, prophets and teachers. This church is unbelievably blessed with great leaders. But what you need to understand is these guys are radically different. Barnabas is a Greek-speaking Jew. Simeon is from Africa. Lucius served in a Syrian synagogue. Menaean was raised in Herod's court, so he's highly educated and wealthy. And Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So these guys, the Fab Five, are radically different people. In fact, they couldn't be more different. And yet they're working together for the sake of the gospel. So radically different people loving one another and loving the lost. So evangelizing their community and discipling those who come to faith. And yet, what do they do? They send out their best. Two of the fab five go. And why do they go? So that others might believe in Jesus. So this church has multicultural leadership, but also be spirit-driven membership. Look again at verses two and three. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So this is clearly a spirit-driven church with spirit-driven membership because the people in the church are fasting and praying, worshiping and seeking God's will, pleading with God to lead and guide and direct all that they're doing as a local congregation, and the Lord makes it clear to them. How does the Lord make it clear to them? Through the Holy Spirit to send out Barnabas and Saul. To the ends of the earth. To minister this glorious gospel to people who have not yet heard about Jesus. Which is what churches should do. Because Jesus gave us the great commission to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And in order to do that, the church needs to send out their best. Right? Because evangelism is hard. Gathering a core team is hard. Starting a brand new church is hard. Starting something that nobody wants and nobody thinks they need is hard. So the church sets apart Barnabas and Saul, two of the Fab Five, which means the members of Antioch don't hold on to them but make the decision to let them go, to send them out. So they send out the best and the brightest for the sake of the gospel. I mean, do you hear how gloriously different that is from the world? What does the world do? The world holds on to the best and the brightest in hopes that they might grow bigger and better, running hard after the kingdom of Antioch rather than the kingdom 
of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? They sent them out. Absolutely fantastic. But no doubt requires sacrifice. The willingness for the mother church to no longer have these leaders whom they love and respect and appreciate, but send them out. To go, therefore, and to make disciples of all the nations. And that's exactly what they do. Which brings us to see gospel-focused missions and really the rest of the book of Acts. Because there's four missionary journeys that take place from Acts 13 all the way to Acts 28. And if you study those missionary journeys, there's this one consistent pattern throughout the entire narrative because over and over again, the gospel is preached first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And as a result, people come to faith, they grow in grace, and they gather together in local churches. So the faithful preaching of the gospel starts or plants individual churches with a plurality of elders. That's the pattern. So my goal is to highlight that pattern and then to transition us to application. So first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch and they travel to Cyprus, to Perga, and Pisidia where Paul goes into the synagogue and starts preaching first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. In fact, if you would, look at Acts 13 verse 44 with me. Acts 13, 44. It says the next Sabbath, so Paul's second Sabbath in the synagogue It's where he goes first. He always goes to the synagogue. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, first to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold... We are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So the gospel is being proclaimed first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and people are coming to faith. They're believing in Jesus. And what happens? Well, they keep moving on throughout the whole region, including Iconium and Lystra, and they keep preaching the gospel, enduring terrible persecution. In fact, Paul is stoned in Lystra before moving on to Derby. But then they return to all these cities. Look at what it says, Acts 14. If you skip to Acts 14, verse 21, it says, and when they, Barnabas and Paul, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Then verse 23, they appointed elders, that's plural, for them in every church, that's singular. So they appointed a plurality of elders in every local church. How? With prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
So the gospel is preached, people come to faith, and what do these missionaries do? They start churches. They plant churches. That's the pattern throughout the entire book of Acts. And every time the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, returned to Antioch, Acts 14, 26, to report all that God had done before heading out on their next missionary journey. But it's the exact same thing, same pattern every time. They preach the gospel, people come to faith, and they gather in individual churches with a plurality of elders. So second missionary journey, Acts 16 to Acts 18. Third missionary journey, Acts 19 to Acts 21. First, Paul travels through Galatia, then Asia, encouraging the churches, but then he heads to Philippi, that's Acts 16, where he preaches the gospel to all kinds of people, including a businesswoman named Lydia, a demon-possessed girl, and a Roman jailer. But in each case, the gospel is preached, the people believe, and the church is planted. Same takes place in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17. Paul's only there for three Sundays, but the gospel is preached, people come to faith, and a church is planted. Same thing takes place in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. And then the same thing takes place in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. But it's always the same strategy. What's my point? My point is that the church in Antioch was a faithful church, which means its leaders were faithful and its members were faithful. Faithful to send out their best, sending out missionaries, raising them up, sending them out who are gospel-focused and absolutely believe that through the faithful preaching of the gospel, people will come to faith, grow in grace, and they will gather together in local churches in order to worship Jesus. And that's obvious. Because where specifically did Paul preach the gospel? Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. Those cities sound familiar. They do. Because we have letters written to every one of those churches in the New Testament. So Antioch was a church planting church that had effective evangelism and dynamic discipleship with members who were spirit-driven, sacrificial, and servant-hearted to send out their best to preach the gospel so that other churches might be planted. Which brings us to number three, application. That we would be a gospel-centered church that is gospel-driven and gospel-sending. But here's the question. What does that look like for the individual member. Here's some questions that I'd like to ask and that I'd like to challenge you with as we close. Number one, who are you when it comes to this specific local church, meaning Christ Proclamation Church? Who are you? Are you a consumer? Or are you committed? For clarity, a consumer is a person who comes whenever they want, takes whatever they need, and has an orientation to be served, provided for, encouraged, built up, and inspired. Without having any orientation or mindset to serve, provide for, encourage, edify, build up, comfort, or console others. Which is totally fine. Fine. 
If you're brand new to Christianity, just being introduced to Christ, then that's exactly where you should be. And we're happy to love you, to serve you, and to teach you the good news of the gospel. And I would appeal to you right now, this morning, to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. Believe in Jesus. Be forgiven. Be saved. And be living for his glory. And when you do, stop being a consumer. And commit your life. First to God, then to the people of God, and then to the mission of Christ. That others might hear the good news of the gospel, repent, believe, and be saved. Because that's the great commission of King Jesus for each and every one of us. So here's the question. Are you committed to this local church? Because there's no way, there's no way for us to send out our best and to continue to do so if we don't have everyone on board, pulling in the same direction, absolutely committed to effective evangelism, dynamic discipleship, and the strategy of raising up people so that we might send them out to preach the gospel so that others might repent, believe, and be gathered in new, faithful, local churches where they can invite their friends and their family, their coworkers, their colleagues to come and hear about Jesus in their local town. We can't do that unless we're all on board. We're all pulling in the same direction. Second question, B. If you are committed to this local church, how committed are you? Meaning, is it a token commitment or is it a sacrificial commitment? Because being a church that plants churches is going to require massive sacrifice. It's going to hurt to send out our best. Meaning we're going to love the people we send. Not just the leadership, but the people who go with the leadership. It's going to hurt to send out our best. It's going to hurt relationally. It's going to hurt financially. It's going to hurt all over the place. So then you might ask me this question, then why do we do that? <laughs> Let's not do that. That sounds like it's going to hurt. It is going to hurt. Why would we do that? Here's why. Because there's people in Manchester who don't yet know Jesus. And if they die outside of faith then they're going to hell when they pass from this life to the next. So what does it cost to send someone, an individual with a team to preach the gospel so that others might believe, be saved, and be gathered as a new local church? It's going to cost a ton. It's going to hurt. But it is so worth it. Just imagine for a moment another vibrant local church in Manchester that is faithfully preaching the gospel with effective evangelism 
with dynamic discipleship, with new believers, with baptism services, and a growing congregation that is raising up leaders of its own so that they might send them out to plant other gospel-centered churches. And we get the great privilege and the great joy to be a part of that. What a privilege. Last question. C. What are you going to do? Meaning, what is your specific role in this commitment to be a gospel-sending church that sends out its best? I very much want you to think about this. Because according to the Great Commission, Jesus says, go. He says, go. And that's absolutely true. We all need to go out to our respective circles of influence and faithfully share the good news of the gospel and disciple those who believe. But when it comes to this church plant in Manchester, there will be goers and there will be senders. So some will need to hold down the fort here in Windsor, making sure this church is a vibrant, growing, gospel-centered church like the church in Antioch that continues to stay strong, preaching the gospel, recruiting people from outside, raising up leaders from inside so we can continue to send out our best to plant churches. This church needs to stay strong so we can continue to do that. Being a church-planting church by God's grace, planting a new church every other year. That would be fantastic. We have to stay strong in order to do that. But some will need to go. Go, therefore, to Manchester to make disciples of all the people there, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Christ has commanded. And I'm just asking, are you asking yourself that question? Are you praying about that opportunity that's before you? Or are you struggling? Are you struggling with motivation? Here's the motivation. God was a sender. And God was a goer for you. Just think about it. God the Father sent God the Son. God the Father sent his only beloved Son on the most sacrificial mission ever to seek and to save the lost. And God the Son went and gave all that he had sacrificed himself on the cold wooden cross of Calvary for your salvation. God was a sender and God was a goer for you that you might hear, believe, and be saved. And now he's calling 
for you to do that for others. So in my mind, if we totally get that, that God was a sender and God was a goer, then there's nothing we shouldn't be willing to do for the sake of the gospel. So may God be gracious to move in us and to move through us in 2023 that we may be willing, able, and empowered to be committed, sacrificial, and consumed by God in whatever way he chooses that we as a local congregation may further his kingdom here in Connecticut. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we're challenged this morning. As we look at the church in Antioch, Lord, it causes us to ask all sorts of questions. Good questions, but hard questions. Are we a gospel-driven church? Do we have effective evangelism? Do we have dynamic discipleship? Is that happening in our lives? And are we a gospel-sending church? Do we have that passion, that excitement, that clarity? Lord, I pray that you would be doing a good work. I pray that you'd be at work and in every mind and in every heart. Lord, first, that we would be overwhelmed by the good news of the gospel that saved us. That we're forgiven of our sin. That we have the hope of eternal life. And somehow that happened because somebody went came to us and preached the gospel. You mobilized someone because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Lord, when we think about you, we recognize that you're a sender and you're a goer and you call us to be senders and goers. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our minds and in our hearts, that we would be thinking in those categories, motivated by the salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus and the deep desire, but we recognize a growing desire that others might hear about Jesus as well, that they might repent, believe, be saved, and be gathered in local churches where your name is praised corporately. Lord, we ask that you would do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.